A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So, talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com. I'm Amanda Littman, and this is Battleground, a podcast from The Recount. Uh, apologies in advance. I've got a bit of a cold, so please forgive my sniffling. Our guest this week is Judd Legum. He's the author of Popular Information, a newsletter about politics and power. Prior to that, Judd's been in many areas that overlap with politics, from founding Think Progress in 2005. He worked as a research director for Hillary Clinton's 2008 presidential campaign. He ran for state office in Maryland. He's someone who just really, really understands corporate influence in D.C. and the media. And I wanted to have Judd on the show this week to talk about the ways in which corporations have power over politicians and over media and the way in which those two things overlap so that the media has a harder time holding politicians accountable for their corporate influence and the messy ecosystem that all of these actors operate in. It's a really interesting conversation. I learned a lot. Judd named some names on which corporations have been the worst actors. I think you're going to like it. But before we get to my conversation with Judd, I want to talk about the utter clusterfuck that is the legislation trying to make its way through the House and Senate in D.C. You know, the day this episode airs, September 30th, is ostensibly the last day of the fiscal year for the United States government which means that by today, Congress needs to approve new government funds or the government will shut down. Democrats in Congress have voted to keep the government open through at least November. All Republicans have voted against it, most recently on Monday night when Senate Republicans specifically blocked it. The White House has told federal agencies they have to prepare for a shutdown. All of this is also happening across the backdrop of a potential default on the country's debt. Janet Yellen, the Treasury Secretary, has said that if Congress does not approve a raising of the debt ceiling or the debt, the United States will default on their debt, which could cause a massive financial crisis, could send this country spiraling into a recession. It would basically cost Americans billions in wealth, millions in jobs, take years, if not potentially a generation, to recover from, all along the backdrop of the sort of shaky economic recovery from the pandemic. It's particularly galling that Republicans are refusing to raise the debt ceiling right now because for one, it's normally a bipartisan vote, but two, raising it today does not pay for future spending. It simply covers what we've already spent. That includes trillions that President Trump added to the national debt. This is not like Democrats looking to pay for stuff 10 years down the road. This is just saying we're gonna pay for what we've already done and We've got the giant infrastructure bill, the BIF, that has been the bipartisan effort to fund bridges and roads and airports and Wi-Fi. And then the Build Back Better agenda, the Biden's presidential big 
legislative agenda that includes child care funds and the child tax credit and so much more that we know is incredibly popular and that the Democrats in both the House and the Senate could campaign on. Like last week, I don't want to get into the back and forth of who's doing what. It's going to change a hundred times between now and then. But I will say, if there is a government shutdown, it will be devastating. We're still in the middle of a pandemic. This is really bad. We need the government to stay open. And if we default on our debt, also really bad. So I am hopeful Democrats in particular will find a way to get this done and will do so keeping in mind that the number one rule of politics in the sort of post-2012 era is never, ever, ever have faith in the Republicans to do the right thing. They will always put their perceived political agenda ahead of the country, ahead of the American people, and ahead of a functioning government. If you are hoping that Mitch McConnell will find it within him to get his caucus to show up and vote to keep the government open, if there's even an off chance that it would also include spending for something he doesn't like or give President Biden a win, you are missing decades of history. He has never once done so. Republicans in this House and Senate will not do so. We got to find a way to get through this without relying on the Republican Party as equal and good faith actors in this process. That sucks. It's a thing we have to fix. But I hope that Schumer and, you know, our forever Speaker Pelosi keep that in mind. Because Republican Party elected officials are not good faith actors in negotiations. I will leave it there for now. I hope by the time you're listening to this, they have found a way to fund the government and we're not looking down to thousands of people being furloughed and checks being delayed and national parks and museums closing. So stay hopeful. <laughs> Let's play my conversation with Judd Legum for popular information. Judd Legum, welcome to Battleground. Thanks for having me, Amanda. So tell us a little bit about yourself. You trained as a lawyer. You founded Think Progress. You worked for Hillary Clinton. You ran for office. You were on one of what is now, I believe, like the most popular progressive newsletters in the country. How did you get here? Um, Just a little <laughs> bit at a time. I can't say that there was really a grand plan. I never really thought that I would be involved in producing media or writing. Mm -hmm. I've always been really interested in politics. I grew up watching C-SPAN and thinking about campaigns and what was going on and reading the newspaper and things like that. I was really trying to get on a campaign, to be honest with you, as I was graduating college, mm -hmm. but I didn't know anyone at the time. So I was mm -hmm. just kind of sending out letters and not hearing back. So I was like, oh, what am I going to do? So I kind of simultaneously was applying to law school, ended up doing that. And from there, that's when I hooked up with John Podesta, Bill Clinton's last chief of staff. He was a professor at Georgetown, which is where I went. Yeah, I was his research assistant. And then as I was graduating, he started Center for American Progress, which is a progressive think tank, and it was supposed to have a big communications element. So that's how I kind of got started on all of it. He brought me on. I didn't really have a job or anything, like any kind of description. It was just sort of like, okay, you'll just come here now and work with me. And I just thought the communication stuff they were doing was the most interesting and started writing a newsletter then. That kind of developed into the blog Think Progress because that was right around 2003 when the blogosphere, as they called it at the time, mm -hmm. was sort of developing. And that's how I got into this kind of work where, you know, research, writing, and trying to look at 
politics with a critical lens. I think progress was kind of ahead of its time in many ways. It was like the lefty media that had we like really built out on it. We now probably would have wished we had. I mean, I think that part of my case when we were starting it was that there was really a lot of underinvestment in that kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. And I think for the most part, my perception was that Democrats, progressives, liberals viewed mistakenly the mainstream outlets like, you know, Washington Post or NPR, whatever it is, as sort of that was their media. Mm -hmm. But, you know, I think we learned with whether it's with the Iraq war or Hillary Clinton's emails or everything else, like it's really not the case. So that was part of the concept was that you needed something that would be factual. That's always the most important, but also take a different approach to a lot of these issues. What do you hope your subscribers get out of popular information that they're not getting out of like a New York Times or Vox or sort of like a quote unquote mainstream? I think you're going to get more in-depth coverage and more adversarial coverage than you might get other places, you know, Mm. and part of it just develops over time. I mean, we were the ones, me and my research (laughs) assistant, who contacted 150 companies after January 6th and asked them if they were going to continue donating to the people who voted to overturn the election that day. And obviously, there's plenty of people capable uh, and a bunch of outlets of doing that. But I think we're looking at things from an accountability perspective. And so that's why we ended up doing that. And then the other thing we're doing, eventually, a lot of people covered that story, but we're following up you know, every time the 20th of the month rolls around and there's a new filing, keeping track of like what's going on, because that's really the most important part of the story is are they keeping these pledges that they've made? So it's that kind of thing that I don't necessarily think you get from corporate media that you might get from independent media, and not just on that issue, but a lot of different topics. Um, One of the things that I think I feel the best about is some of the coverage we did on the treatment of workers in different kinds of jobs as the pandemic was ramping up. We did a big one on Darden Restaurants, which owns Olive Garden, which didn't have any paid leave you know, in March 2020, had no paid leave and talked to a lot of people about what the implications of that were during the pandemic and the same for cable technicians. And that's the kind of bottom up approach that we're trying to take as well. I feel like one of the pros that also might be a con of sort of running an email newsletter is that you really get to hear from them. Absolutely. <laughs> like you have a very intimate relationship with your readers. How does that inform what you think about your reporting? I definitely take it into account. Mm -hmm. You know, sometimes you just want to cover an issue and you're just going to keep covering it. So I think it's a balance. Yeah. Like you really want to avoid being captured by your readers. That's one nice thing about the subscription model is that, you know, people can email you and they're like, I hated this. I hated this piece. I disagree with you. I disagree with your point. And, you know, that's fine. But The worst that they could do is they can unsubscribe and that's $50, which I don't want to lose, but it's okay. Like I've diversified enough that that I can (laughs) afford to, to piss a couple people off and you have to be willing to do that. Certainly that happens. I did, um, you know, some very critical pieces on Biden's secretary of defense and his connections to Raytheon. And mm-hmm. um, there's some people on m- my list who would like me never to do anything critical about someone in the Biden administration, but it's just not the way I'm going to approach it. And that's OK. 
Um, you mentioned this, like the thing that separates you from a New York Times is the follow-up. What incentivizes corporate media not to do that? I think that it can sometimes be very awkward for them to cover these corporate accountability stories. Yeah. You know, AT&T, which, which is one of the <laughs> biggest political donors, and I, I feel like every time we're investigating something, I end up writing and focusing a lot on them. You know, they own CNN. I, I think CNN does great work. I know a lot of the people who work there, they're good journals, but it is awkward to cover them. Yeah. And I'm not, I don't even necessarily think it might be like a conscious thing, but you're, you know, to just go at AT&T and really stick on it. It's like, you know, you cover it once and that's probably enough. I think the other part of it is there's a lot of things, and this is what I'm I'm trying to like puzzle through this, you know, as I'm thinking about the reconciliation bill and other things that are going on in DC right now. There's a lot of things that go on that people who are part of the media political ecosystem, kind of the elite ecosystem, just recognize of like, oh, that's just the way things work. Yeah. These large corporations, they get to Republicans and Democrats. That's just what happens. It's not a story. It's not interesting. Mm -hmm. I think the same thing with all the lobbying that's going on around the reconciliation bill and why all of the tax increases and programs and everything else keeps getting scaled in one direction. It's a lot of this lobbying activity and things like that. And I think it can sometimes be easy for people who are in the know just to dismiss this as like not interesting. But if you dig in, I do think you can apply public pressure and public scrutiny to it. We did a big research project early on when the Georgia voter suppression bill was taking shape and there were protests in front of Coca-Cola and and other folks once they got that information was out there. So, you know, empowering people in that way, I think can be really useful, but I don't think it's necessarily the way that a lot of people who are producing, who are covering politics think about their jobs. I often think like corporate impact on politicians' behavior is both underrated and overrated at the same time. It is not as simple as pharmaceutical drugs give a politician X amount of money so they vote a particular way. Absolutely. It's like, it's hard to tease out the nuance here. Can you explain the way that corporate money ends up having an impact on a politician's voting behavior? Yeah, I don't think it's, especially the money that comes through PACs, it's very small for everyone involved, for the corporation, for the politician. It, It doesn't amount to much. But corporations have an extraordinary influence on politics through a whole variety of ways. I mean, one, let's take a company like Mm AT&T. They're based in Texas. They have a huge number of employees who work in Texas. So just a huge number of voters and just the people who are driving the economy are connected to AT&T. They have 80 plus lobbyists in Texas. The other thing is, Companies, you know, going back to lobbying, both individually, but then through an entity like the U.S. Chamber of Commerce, which has huge amounts of money, huge amounts of lobbyists, huge amounts of connections, people are looking to them for guidance as to how do I support the business community. All of that adds up to a very significant influence on state and national politics. So it's this whole ecosystem. Mm -hmm. And really what the donation is, is almost a signal about that connection. Now, for some politicians, it can be significant, especially like incumbents who've been there for a while. They don't have, uh, you know, the grassroots, you know, yeah. they don't have a big email list. They don't, they don't understand how to raise money in 
$5 or $10 increments, yeah. there are incumbents out there who get 70, 80% of their money through corporate PACs. So if you cut off corporate money through those people, that can be a problem. But for the most part, it's more of a signal of a much deeper relationship between a corporation and one or more politicians. So for a politician or a candidate to say, I'm not taking corporate PAC money is in a way, it's good virtue signaling, (laughs) but it's not always like a a meaningful financial hit. I think it's a meaningful symbol, but it's not, it doesn't always necessarily affect their bottom line. No, it's not. It is becoming less and less meaningful, especially if you're a politician that has a sort of modern fundraising apparatus, you can you can do well. Yeah. That's why a lot of Democrats and a handful of Republicans don't take PAC money because you can survive without it. But it's part of a much larger ecosystem that virtually everyone is a part of. And that's why I think in that respect, it's underrated. Well, and even for candidates who don't take corporate PAC money, especially when you think about the committees, and in particular, like the state legislative committees and the gubernatorial committees, They take corporate PAC money. They take all kinds of corporate money and often funnel money back to their candidates. Like, I often think a lot, we don't hold the donors to the Republican State Leadership Conference, the committee that focuses on Republican state legislators, accountable enough for the money that they are throwing at these races. Because to fund the RSLCC is to fund voter suppression. Oh, absolutely. Entities like that, 527 groups, Mm -hmm. that's where the big money is. Yeah. You know, whereas a PAC donation is $5,000, maybe ten if, you, if you're doing a primary or in a, in a general, it's unlimited to these 527s. And there are companies that are giving multiple hundreds of thousands of dollars. There are large donors that are giving millions of dollars to the Republican Governors Association or the Republican State Leadership Committee. And, you know, for somebody like me, I'm getting into that. But honestly, <laughs> it's a lot harder to track. Yeah. You know, the, the 527s are only putting out information twice a year in an off year as opposed to quarterly or or monthly when you look at the PAC contributions. And then, of course, beyond that, you've got uh, nonprofits, 501c4s and and things like that, that there's no information on unless it's voluntarily disclosed. So that is really like where the bodies are buried, so to to speak. (laughs) But I'd love to see at least some more disclosure because I think that if this stuff becomes public, corporate behavior can change. Yeah. And that could have ultimately an impact on things. Um, there's the hard resources like money, and then there's the soft resources like relationships. You recently reported that six of Joe Manchin's former staffers are working as lobbyists for the fossil fuel and energy companies. I find trashing Joe Manchin to be just like the most cathartic stress relief possible. (laughs) And he's not the only legislator who has opened a revolving door between his office and these kinds of companies. Can you explain a little bit about how that works for people who may not be familiar and what it does to our politics? Yeah. And I think it starts coming into play a -hmm. lot earlier than it might seem at first blush. So what you have is, and I think of those six, three of them were former mansion chiefs of staff. As a chief of staff, you're going to be talking to that person every single day. And then you can make a lot more money, obviously, representing a trade association for fossil fuel companies or BP or whatever. So you've got a number of people coming from Joe Manchin's office who are now making a lot of money, and they're making a lot of money on the premise that they can have influence on Joe Manchin. 
not only that they can call him up and be like, hey, you know, we need this or that, and maybe he does it, maybe he doesn't. He's probably more likely to do it if they call versus just a random person. But also, like, they know how he thinks. They know what's important to him. You know, they're going to give you insight into the Joe Manchin experience. And what I think is underappreciated is the fact that if you are the chief of staff for Joe Manchin or you're a top staffer and you know that not now, but in two years and three years and four years, you might want to move over to X lobbying firm or X company or X trade association. There's a lot of ways that you can ingratiate yourself with that group even before that move is made. Mm -hmm. So just the whole culture that it creates. And by the way, the people who can't afford to pay former Joe Manchin staffers, whatever they command on the open market, don't have this kind of access. So one thing we could do that might improve things somewhat is to pay congressional staffers a little more. Because right now you have people who are on the Hill for a decade or longer, and they're still only making sixty, seventy thousand $70,000 a year. It's not a horrible salary, but if you're living in D.C. and you have a family and things like yeah. that, eventually you want to make more. And right now, the lobbying firms are are able to pay you a lot more. I was talking to somebody. I haven't reported this out, so it's going to be exclusive to you here uh, in, this, in this conversation, <laughs> where this person was telling me that the way that lobbying firms attract staffers that they think have good connections is they describe it as they'll start you off by putting a one in front of your current salary. That is. So you can see that the incentives are completely screwed up. God, putting a one in front of their salary, even if it's a slight exaggeration, that is, I think, a perfect encapsulation of the, the sort of way that we value public service and working in Congress versus the way we value the private sector. Yeah. And if you think about it, these lobbyists then might be able to, you know, once you go to the other side, they might be able to convince members, like, you know, we're wasting billions of dollars, mm-hmm. maybe trillions of dollars. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com. On weapon systems that don't work, on all of these things where you know the defense industry probably has the the biggest, the best, the most influential cadre of lobbyists there are. So there are effectively real costs into not creating a system where you know people are having to effectively cash in their connections. I mean, we've talked about this in many different formats on this, like a conversation about why consultants tend to run political campaigns is because it's in many ways, because being a consultant is the most (laughs) stable, lucrative way to stay in politics while also being an adult who has a family and a mortgage and all of that. Um, Being a lobbyist is 
unfortunately seems like one of the most stable ways to stay in the political process while not having to work 80 hour weeks on Capitol Hill. (laughs) Yeah. And we've also created a system where so much of it can stay secret, even though it's mm-hmm. impacting the public. Yeah. So you do have to disclose if you are a lobbyist, if you register as a lobbyist. Of course, there's a lot of people who are effectively doing lobbying, but not technically, so they don't yeah. <laughs> register. Probably the best paid people don't do that. But then once you do that, you know all the meetings, all the discussions, all the back and forth that goes on, that all stays secret. There's no disclosure. There's no way to get it through the Freedom of Information Act or anything else because the Congress is exempted from that. So, so much of what's going on, there's just no visibility into. And I think that that has a really corrosive impact on Congress. And I think it definitely contributes to why so few people have trust in Congress as a whole. And it's even worse in state capitals where The legislators themselves are often a little less experienced and the lobbyists have been there for quite a long time. The pay discrepancy is even bigger. It's just, it's such a fucking mess. Oh yeah. Battleground will be back after a quick break. Welcome back to Battleground. We're talking to Judd Begum of Popular Information. One of my favorite things that you have done at Popular Information is calling out corporations who publicly champion social justice efforts and then funnel money to legislators who act in direct opposition to that. Um, You know, most recently, the Texas anti-abortion bill. Um, Name some of the worst offenders. I mean, I think one that that we mentioned before was was Mm AT&T. You know, and it's not just that they're spending all of this money supporting people with very extreme views that go well beyond just opposing abortion rights. Yeah. I mean, we have a system in Texas now where they're putting bounties on anyone who assists in getting an abortion over six weeks, which I think, you know, is just broadly people of all sorts of ideologies think that's over the line. I mean, I think it was like 80%. Yeah. Uh, I saw a poll that opposed that. So it, it goes even beyond just the issue of of abortion rights. But at the same time, a company like AT&T really invests like a ton of money in positioning themselves as champions of women, of gender equality, of mm-hmm. women's rights. You know, and no one's forcing them to spend lots of money on promoted tweets about female role models and and how they're breaking barriers and how we need to support them. I mean, AT&T is talking about that. Their CEO is talking about how gender equality is a core value. Yeah. You know, we saw it with Coca-Cola and I think Coca-Cola is a good example because they're based in Atlanta. They've really Mm -hmm. latched on to the legacy of John Lewis, the the connection of where they're situated with the civil rights movement. They have a lot of African-American employees at high levels. So it's a legitimate part of their corporate culture. But at the same time, they are, as far as I know, continuing to support members of the Georgia legislature who have successfully rolled back time. I mean, it was going to be even worse. The folks, the initial versions, it, it ended up still pretty bad. But You know, I think companies do this kind of thing because it does improve their brand image and they aren't used to people comparing that to, especially at the state level, to where their money's going. Yeah. 
I think one issue is that the state reporters are so hollowed out. There's been yeah. so many job cuts. It's just like they have like one person who's covering the entire state legislature in some of these papers or maybe a couple of people. You know, they don't have days and days and days to kind of parse this and figure out what's going on. So that's a lot of times where we can step in and figure out the thing that, you know, is getting missed. And that's what I'm looking for. Also, one of the things that I struggle with a lot is calling on corporations to take action for or against politicians feels a little bit in tension with my broader sense of like corporations should have no role in the political process. Like politicians shouldn't care what corporations do. Their voice shouldn't be louder than the voter. And and like, I don't have an answer for this, but it's something I think about a lot. If the elected officials won't listen to me, the voter, will they listen to Apple? Will they listen to Coca-Cola? And like, that sucks to think that that my voice matters less. No, this is something I've thought about a lot too. And I think it's a very important point. And it's ultimately part of this is about holding corporations accountable for what they are doing in politics. Mm-hmm. So for instance, after January 6th, you know, a lot of companies decided that they would pause or suspend their donation to the Republican objectors. Charles Schwab actually took a different approach and they just shut down their pack. It's the move. <laughs> you know, that was their response. They just said, we're not going to have a pack. And there's a lot of companies that don't have yeah. pack. You don't need to have a pack. And I actually think that's a fine reaction. I considered that a pretty good response. Like, hey, maybe we just shouldn't be in the business of, of doing this. And ultimately, that might be a good place to go. The reality is th- the impact of corporations right now is, you know, we're so far away from that. I just think we kind of have to deal with what the reality is, Mm -hmm. you know, and I'm, I was thinking about this and just trying to get my head around it, but what the Chamber of Commerce, which is probably the most powerful lobbying organization in the country, represents nearly every uh, major corporation with a couple of exceptions, you know, what they're doing right now, you know, opposing the reconciliation package, which means they're opposing paid leave, they're opposing closing up loopholes for intergenerational dynastic wealth to have people essentially to avoid paying any taxes while they're getting what they're inheriting. Mm-hmm. They were opposed to the For the People Act, opposing voting rights. Yeah. All of the things they're doing and the massive influence that has, because the reason why we've had, you know, the voting rights extended in the past, where it's not being now is that it wasn't viewed at that time as a controversial issue. You know, Walmart Mm -hmm. wrote George W. Bush in 2006 and said, we want you to support an extension of the Voting Rights Act. And it did happen. And that actually gives Republicans a lot of cover. The Republicans in Congress now probably weren't going to really support it anyway. Like, I don't want to give them too much credit and put it all in the Chamber of Commerce. But once the Chamber of Commerce goes in and says, we're opposed to that, and this is going to be a key vote, and we're going to put in your scorecard, you know, they want 100% from the Chamber of Commerce. That's how they're running. I know that I had gone off the deep end when I found myself getting angry that companies who'd spoken up on things like voting rights or even like LGBT issues didn't on the abortion bill in Texas. And like, where is the line? Why is it okay to put like women, especially women of color, low income women in danger? Why is that okay? But this wasn't. And like, that's one, that's not a fair comparison. And two, why am I looking to corporations as my arbiters of what is good and what is evil? But the role that they play has become, and I think actually Trump changed this quite a bit. I'm not sure, and I'd be curious for your perspective here, if before 2016, corporations were seen as the arbiters of good and evil in the political process. 
I think most of this relates back to their employees. People who are trying to attract very skilled employees are competing with each other. You know, Apple yeah. is competing with Google, is competing with Facebook, is competing with AT&T, is competing with all these places. They want to work for some place that they feel good about. And so over the years, you've had corporations, you know, whether it was, you know, the bathroom bill in North Carolina, corporations played a huge role in that. And you had corporations, you know, their employees were expecting them to speak out. You saw a lot of people, a lot of corporations, you know, when we had the murder of George Floyd. Correct, yeah. And you saw those black boxes with white text, you know, with corporations saying that they were committed to racial justice, et cetera, et cetera. I think a lot of that's driven by employees. But what's happened in response is that Republicans have attempted to impose costs hmm. on those. And some of it is public. Uh, yeah. You know, for instance, after Delta came out against the Georgia bill. Now, this happened after it was signed into law, so it was pretty much pointless anyway. Cool. But eventually <laughs> they realized that the backlash, I think, within their own company and then also the public was so strong, they put out a statement saying that they opposed it. The Texas Senate passed legislation pulling back a, a very important tax credit on fuel for them. Now, it didn't pass the House, but I think that was like a shot across the bow. And then, you know, there were similar measures that were proposed, although not passed, in Texas saying that, you know, if you are a company that comes out in a opposition to our voter suppression bill, they obviously didn't call it that yeah. in the bill, but, you know, we're, you're no longer going to be eligible for certain you know, grants or tax credits and things like that. Not passed, but proposed. And I know from my own reporting and just talking to folks is a lot of times one of the things I hear that I do believe is they're getting threatened with retribution yeah. from these Republican politicians being like, don't call us when you need something if you're going to come out and put your neck on that. So that's why I think with this abortion bill, you really have corporations hanging, hanging back. Let's take a quick break. More of my conversation with Jed Legum when we return. Good news. We're back with Jed Legum. Um, I want to take a little bit back to the media's role. We have discussed on the show in various avenues how the media can get a little bit hysterical over things, but often after it's too late. So, you know, for example news outlets of all political leanings were really quick to shit on Biden after the Afghanistan withdrawal. But there was perhaps shockingly little coverage of Afghanistan for many of the years leading up to that moment. How do you feel about the coverage in the media? Well, I thought there were a lot of problems with the coverage mm -hmm. of, of the withdrawal. You know, one of the things that I think was probably the defining moment for me and just my approach to all of this is watching coverage of the Iraq war. Mm -hmm. There was no social media at that time. <laughs> and so I was just watching Colin Powell uh, in front of the UN, you know, making his case and just watching that and the coverage of that made me realize that you have to be skeptical about the coverage and, and what you're being told. So I think that really colored a lot of my perceptions of what was going on in Afghanistan, because here we are two decades later, and finally we are getting out. And I think the major problem, you know, in the early days is that all the people that they were talking to were all the people who have been wrong about what's going on in Afghanistan mm. for all of these years, you know, both in an official capacity and an unofficial capacity as pundits. There were so few voices of people who have been critical of how long this war has gone on. Now, obviously, there was, as part of the withdrawal, you know, not only 
members of the U.S. military who died, but civilians who died. All of that is tragic, but there were a lot more people who died while the war was going on. And people were very focused on the idea that, oh, there hasn't been any military casualties for like a year or something like that. And that's because as we drew down the on the ground military presence, the United States to keep the Taliban at bay was having to become more and more reliant on Mm -hmm. the use of air attacks, drones and things like that. And the civilian casualties were going up. So there was a real human cost to the occupation and the continuation of the war that I thought was missing, as well as some context for who was being brought on. I think as the coverage got later and later and later, at least in some outlets, started to get a little bit better, at least bringing on not just the former members of the Department of Defense and, and the various branches of the military predicting things about Afghanistan that never came to pass for two decades. That answer was too long, but I think (laughs) I thought that the coverage was abominable. I think that there's a lot of inherent support for war and military spending in the objective media. Yeah. That has no basis in any kind of objective measure. I feel like this happens on any number of topics from Afghanistan to election punditry to pandemic. People who speak and predict things and then decisions are made on those predictions and those predictions are wrong and no one is ever held accountable for being wrong. Or like there are no consequences for being full of shit. Is that intentional? Is like, how does that happen? Well, I think (laughs) uh, it's a complicated question, but I think there's a lot of clubbiness to it, to be honest with you. And it's always something that's really irritated me about D.C. for the most part. You know, a lot of it is based on relationships Mm -hmm. and It's a lot of people who are talking to each other, and a lot of times you don't break outside of that, and you can get myopic in what kinds of arguments you're considering. I also think, you know, and this is something I learned, you know, through my experience working on and participating in some political campaigns, that there's a real desire in the coverage to have like an ebb and a flow. It's like any narrative. It can't stay the same. You know, if you're watching a TV show and, you know, every episode is just the same thing, you know, you'd be like bored. You want something new to happen. The person who is doing well is now doing badly. The underdog is now succeeding. The person who was on top gets their comeuppance. And I think, you know, with Afghanistan, I think that's a lot of what drove it, you know, is that Biden had gotten a lot of positive coverage maybe up until then on his handling of the pandemic. So this is kind of as the Delta variant is sort of changing the game there and sort of like, well, it's time for some critical coverage because that's what we're going to do. So I think a lot of people jumped onto it for that reason. And obviously, if you're going to withdraw from a country that you've been in there for two decades, it's not like there were no mistakes. There were probably tons of mistakes. It's just I don't think it was the calamity that it was it was made out to be. I once had a reporter explain to me that, you know, at the end of the day, they have a boss. The boss expects content. The boss has a boss who also expects content. That boss has advertisers who need something to advertise against. So the end of, like they are held accountable by that sort of chain of command and the economic structure of that media outlet that then means if you're not going to give them a quote for a story, they're going to have to find a story themselves. <laughs> who do you consider yourself accountable to? I consider myself accountable to my readers. Mm. And I think ultimately, like all of media should be more accountable to the 
readers, yeah. which is why I'm much more into the subscription model than I am to the advertising model. You know, mm-hmm. it's just like some of these newsletters by, I don't like to necessarily call them out, but I'll just do it just to be totally straightforward. Yeah. It's like, you know, if you write a newsletter for Politico and it's sponsored by Chevron, you know, that doesn't necessarily mean you're taking marching orders from Chevron. But let's be honest. Chevron is only going to put their name and only going to pay money for a certain kind of newsletter that takes a certain approach. It's not going to do that for other kinds of newsletters. And so I don't want to write a newsletter that Chevron feels comfortable sponsoring. I mean, I don't accept (laughs) advertising, so I'm not going to accept it from any company. But I do think that, like, you know, it's reasonable to ask why am I writing a newsletter that Chevron wants to be a part of? And, you know, I'm not I'm not saying I necessarily know the answer to that exactly, but I do think to me it would be a red flag. Yeah, we we early on had to make decisions about like who we would and would not take money from for the organization I ran. And I was like, well, if the NRA wants to give us money, then we're doing something wrong. So yeah. this is this should be a non-starter. <laughs> right. Yeah. Um, I want to close out by asking you for some advice. So correct me if wrong, but I, I think I would break down popular information sort of core beats mm-hmm. or messages into there's too much money in politics. Politicians prioritize corporations over people. And the media, generally speaking, does a pretty bad job of covering all of that and then some. How do we fix this? That's a very nice summary. When this comes out, I'm going to have to <laughs> write that down because I always just sort of ramble when people ask what I'm covering. I think that the first step is admitting you have a problem. Mm. So that's part of what I've tried to accomplish with the newsletter is just opening up people's eyes to all the various ways that corporate interests that don't necessarily reflect the interests of regular people are shaping state politics, local politics, national politics. I mean, I think most people would say corporations are powerful, but they're not necessarily in tune with the specific ways about how they're impacting voting rights, how they're impacting taxes, all of this kind of stuff. Once you do that, I think it can make it a more salient political issue. Ultimately, you are going to have to have people in power who are committed to being motivated by other things. This isn't just an option that's available for Democrats. There's all Mm -hmm. sorts of real, more populist campaigns that can be from all sorts of ideological perspectives. I mean, ultimately, Trump got elected this way, right? Like Mm -hmm. Trump didn't get elected saying, hey, I'm going to cut the corporate tax rate. He got elected saying, I'm going to stick it to Goldman Sachs. Of course, then he put Goldman Sachs, you know, know, like like it's a very powerful message on both sides of the aisle. But if you had people who genuinely embrace that, then I think you could start to lessen the influence and you would start getting policies that really were more focused on people. Like the fact that there is no paid leave in the United States of America, like it's unbelievable. And I think that just like a lot of people who run in urban wealth circles, they have access to paid leave. They don't even understand how big of a problem this is for so many people and how Mm -hmm. we're the only industrialized country that has that. And I think if we had more people who were listening to their constituents and not listening to very wealthy interests, that that would be prioritized over, you know, knocking seven points off the corporate tax rate. I love that solution because it just means getting better people into the process, which is, you know, 
my whole shtick. So thank you for taking the time to talk today. I really appreciate it. Thanks for having me. This was fun. Thank you so much to Judd Legum for joining me on Battleground this week. I have been loving the ideas that our listeners have sent in. So thank you to everyone who has emailed or called or left us a voicemail. If there's someone you think we should have on Battleground or a topic you'd like us to cover, please leave us a message at 929-399-6748 or email us at battleground at therecount.com. Battleground is a podcast from The Recount. If you enjoyed this episode, give us a rating and a golden review at Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. Aaliyah Jackson and David Wilson engineered this podcast. Jessica Williams and Megan Burney are our associate producers. Tara Anavino is our producer and story editor. And Christian Castro-Vassal is our executive producer. 